The Lord's testimonies, it says, are wonderful. His truth is wonderful. And that truth, the primary point, the pinnacle of that truth is that all we have is Christ. We have a lot of other things in this world, but all of them because of Christ. And none of them would have any value apart from Christ. Is that not true? Yeah. So the salvation that we have. Well, let's, uh, let's just take another moment and uh, focus our hearts on the Lord as we, uh, as we go to his word this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, your goodness, your grace. All combined and packed into one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. We have been worshiping you, Lord, this morning already, focusing our hearts in your direction, and it's amazing how you've provided us with, with music. You invented it. You created it and placed it in our hearts and made it a channel in which we could, we could praise you. We could enter into that which the angels do, in your presence even now. And so we pray that our worship, we would understand that our worship is something done in your presence even as we live in this world. A world that struggles to uh, grasp your truth. A world that distracts us from your truth. And Lord, we pray that this, this time, this moment we have together here would be a special moment where we can focus in on you and on your, your truth. So lead us, guide us as we look into your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are back in Acts, and no surprise, Acts chapter 15. And we've been talking about... Uh, taking risks in this gospel mission, in sharing the truth about Christ and the cross. And, and you might ask, well, what kind of risks? Are we to precariously dangle our life, our physical life out there, or what is it? But even just going against our human sensibilities uh, in terms of what makes sense to us as human beings, it's, a, it's taking a risk. We might risk uh, friendship. We might risk being seen as somebody who's foolish. We might even lose a job were we to speak out for the Lord's truth. And those are risks that, that we can be taking for him and for truth. And we saw that in chapter 14, these first missionaries, 13 and 14, um, these first missionaries, uh, they were sent out into the wide world, the wild world, to share the gospel, and they met opposition as they shared the gospel. And that truth that was so important, they talked about the resurrection of Christ, the redemption of Christ, and the reconciliation of Christ. Three very important themes in terms of the gospel and what it is that God has offered us in terms of a relationship with Him. And it says, some believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Their lives were transformed by faith in the Lord of eternity and others turned on them. We saw what happened. Uh, this message that was simply 
the conclusion to the Israelite story. It was the beginning of the Gentile salvation, and and it was offensive. There were people who, who attacked them, people who physically tried to kill Paul. And we can say we understand, because it seems that telling people truth, that we are wrong, that all of us are wrong, and there's only one way that we can be righted is offensive. We see that in our day, and this is nothing new. Sometimes we think, wow, wow, why, why can't people listen to truth? Why can't we talk about things, differences in opinions, and, and why can't we? But it's always been that way. The closer you get zeroed in on where the answer is, on who the truth is, that it is Jesus Christ, it becomes an offensive truth. And so we must be careful, not because we're trying to avoid getting hurt, but we must be careful because we want people to understand that this is a loving message. It's very easy for people to hear a message that you're a sinner, you need a savior, and and their backs get up, right? That's natural for all of us. I know there's a certain group of us, we love to be told we're wrong. (laughs) Nobody's putting their hand up with me. No, none of us like to be told we're wrong. But if there's a way to right things, if there's a way to correct things, it can be the most loving thing in the world. And so this is the message. God, like a good parent, is correcting his children so that we can avoid death, avoid separation from him. And so the stakes are high. There's apt to be suffering in this life. If we understand truth, if we're trying to live according to truth, if we're trying to share truth, and it's, it's that offensive, but it's that essential, there's going to be a clash. There's going to be suffering. But we understand that suffering is part of the ministry. It's part of the model that Jesus left for us too. We saw benefit in suffering last week as we talked about it. It authenticates the message, doesn't it? When people see that we're willing to live our lives differently and suffer for it, they think, well, maybe there's something to this message. These people are willing to give up joys and pleasures and comfort and safety in the here and now There must be something more to this. There must be a greater reality. You can say you believe, but when you lay down your life, it speaks clearly of the greater reality. There's another benefit, and we know it as as believers in Jesus Christ, as his disciples. If we want to be like the suffering Savior, We have to be willing to suffer, don't we? There's no other way that we can be like him. That's a primary primary point for us. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. So there are many struggles, many types of sufferings. Some of them are, are natural and normal. We live in a sinful world. We're going to feel the effects, sickness, soreness. We're going to be subject to injustice in this world. But here, primarily, we're talking about another kind of suffering where we're willing to take a stand for truth. 
for reality. And the world will always be opposed to truth, to God's truth. And we will hopefully always have a growing understanding of what that truth is and a greater ability to live it out. So this is the sort of suffering that we're talking about. But you know, sometimes when we stand for suffering, it's not just the world out there. Sometimes when we stand for truth, there's a struggle even in the congregation, even in the church. So what about when our struggle is with others in the church? We're not talking about simply uh, a personality difference, opinions, but our basic beliefs. What if there are differences? This is what we're talking about this week as we begin chapter 15. There's a difference in what is believed to be true within the church. So let's start to read verse 1 of chapter 15. Let's read the first five verses where it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch, the church that sent them out as missionaries, and some men came down to them there from Judea. And we're telling them, you have to be circumcised to be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers, the Christians in those areas. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to be circumcised, to circumcise them, to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we see a struggle is building. And I'm aware that in the church, uh, in the Christian life, too often people in the church uh, define who they are by what they're against or who they're against rather than who they are for. We all know that, don't we? The church, sometimes the fingers pointed at us and you guys, well, you guys are against everything. Um, used to be, they say, oh, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't dance, or they don't like this denomination, or, or those preachers, or they're against these ones. And We don't want to be labeled as antagonistic people. And we shouldn't be labeled as antagonistic people. We also shouldn't give people a reason to point the finger at us and say we're antagonistic people. But there are moments where, in terms of truth, it's necessary to draw a line. And this is important. It's not to show them they're wrong. It's not to show them we are right. But it's to direct people to God's truth, to give an answer according to his truth. That's the stance we should take. But of course, humanly speaking, that is sometimes difficult. There are a lot of 
human pressures. There's our own pride and there's other people's antagonism and we can get to the place where we, we begin to fight. But there are lives at stake and so we need to hold the line in terms of truth. Now it starts out, it says men came down from Judea and we sort of look on a map and we go, well, Judea is here in the south of Israel and Syria, Antioch is north. Why do they say come down? Simple, it's just an altitude drop of about 700 meters, okay? But as I read that, I was thinking, you know, they're probably thinking they came down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem's where Christianity began. They came to Antioch of Syria, this, this young church that's doing very well, and there could be this sense on the part of some that, well, these are the guys who know. These are the guys who have a handle on truth because they're from Jerusalem. And that's where, remember, the 3,000 people came to the Lord, the birth of the church in one day. That's where the leaders are. This movement, the disciples, most of them are still there. So they could be thinking, wow, wow, these guys are important. And I know we, we read this and we see, oh, they say you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, and we immediately, we dismiss that because we have the rest of the New Testament and we've gone through this. It's, it's just Christ. It's the cross. It's the gospel. That's where we get saved. It's not in performing rituals. But you know, these people didn't have all the teaching that we had and they had these pressures on them. As I said, these guys, these Judean disciples came. There's reason to believe that Peter was among them. We think of circumcision. It was a covenant symbol that God demanded of Abraham when he formed the promised people. He reaffirmed circumcision at different points, commanding people, you must be circumcised. It's part of the law of Moses. And so does it make sense that there might have been some loyalty to the law? These Jewish people who've been following the law for years and years and years. It makes sense that they would be stuck thinking, oh, we've got to follow the law. We've got to continue. And if these Gentiles are going to be real Christians, they've got to go the same route we did. They've got to follow the law. Then receive Christ then they'll be Christians. So we see where they would have gotten stuck. But Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, not necessary. The Gentiles don't have to follow Jewish ritual law. But it wasn't based on a hunch, a feeling, an opinion. But it was based on what the Lord had said. And we have to remember that in terms of of these original apostles, the authority that they had. Remember what happened with Paul? Uh, he learned directly from the Lord. We learn about that in Galatians chapter 1. It explains that after he got knocked off of his high horse and humbled by the loving service of the people who he was trying to persecute, he didn't go to the disciples, but he went into Arabia 
Then into Damascus, it says for a few years, he was there learning from the Lord. And even after that, he never sought publicity or, or notoriety. He just continued to serve the Lord. He continued to preach the gospel. He continued to turn people to Christ. And the Lord authenticated his ministry. People came to know Christ. Hearts were changed and he ended up in this, in this church in Antioch where he became one of the primary teachers. And so we see how God worked through this man who wasn't seeking to set himself up, but God gave him the authority through what he taught him and through how his ministry was going. Now we could say, how does this apply to us? The first problem we have We jump to this conclusion. We wouldn't say it in these words, but sometimes we act as though we have some kind of apostolic authority. We act as though, well, I feel that we should do things this way, so this is what God thinks. Sounds silly when I say it that way, doesn't it? But you know, the only authority that we have The only knowledge that we have is because the Lord has shared it with us through his word. And that's what we need to remember. And if it's not something, if it's not a question that's based on his word, is it really that important? Many of the problems that have happened within the church over the years have been problems about preferences and opinions over (laughs) even things such as the painting of the color of the walls the decorating and and those things have divided people and it's why because people are antagonistic people want what they want they're selfish it's nothing been nothing to do with with truth that can be defined from the scripture and so we need to remember any handle that we have on truth is not based on our opinions ourselves it's not what we're comfortable with but it's based on the lord on his truth and on our proximity to him our closeness to him you see it's not just about knowing god's word but it's walking with him and applying his word in the way he wants us to apply it You've probably known people who know truth, who have a great handle on the scriptures, but they use it to kind of beat people over the head. Remember hearing about a man who, who first came to, to the Lord. He was a sailor, actually, and he was turned around. He was a drunken sailor. And he went and he told his brother the gospel, and his brother wouldn't believe the gospel, so he started beating him up little young in the faith, little immature, right? But the problem is there are a lot of people who've been in the church a lot longer who would do the same thing. Take truth and you see, we need Christ. We need his spirit to apply it correctly. We need to have an intimacy in our walk with him. Christ in me, me in Christ, so that it's him leading the way and not me and you think of Paul I mean the fact that he learned 
truth directly from the Lord. He could justify himself, couldn't he? You're wrong, I'm right, I know. He could go back to some of his old ways. Remember how he persecuted the church before he knew the Lord? (laughs) What if he were to apply some of those same principles? Let's go after these guys. Let's take them down. But no, it was all in conversation. It was all in defending the truth. He seemed to get it right. And he came out on the right side of history, as they say today. He supported what Christ said. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, the foundational Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about being the fulfillment of the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I don't wipe it out and say it was all purposeless, meaningless, unimportant. But he says, I came to fulfill the law, to complete the law. He doesn't wipe out the moral, the moral importance of the law but he completes all of those outward traditions that were meant to be helpful, symbolic acts. And they're now no longer necessary. Think of them, the sacrifices. Well, that's obviously no longer necessary because Christ was the final sacrifice. The Sabbath rules, the dietary laws, the customs, and circumcision. They're not required because Christ died. And these things were just meant to prepare and point people to Christ. We can go back to the book of Hebrews and read but how all these things were, were talked about, but Christ was presented as superior. All of these things were just a shadow, a shadow, an image to outline and point us to Christ. But the sermon goes on to say, the Sermon on the Mount, that the moral part is even more deeply applicable to the follower of Jesus Christ. Murder? Well, murder's still wrong. But even more so, the Lord says, don't be angry in your heart against somebody. Adultery? No, not just adultery. It's wrong, but don't even lust. We're told to love our enemies. Well, we know we should love other people, other followers of the Lord. But Christ said, love your enemies. And we realize this whole thing is not just about outward action. It's about a change of heart. That's what salvation is, a transformation of our heart. We're new people in Christ so we're to be thinking differently, living differently. And Paul makes this clear that it's about the heart in Romans chapter 2 because he talks about it having a circumcised heart. Romans 2.29. We go, well, what does that mean? Well, just as circumcision was a sign that you are one with God. The idea of having a circumcised heart is having a transformed heart. It's a seal of the covenant. What's the seal of the covenant? The Holy Spirit living in us, changing the way we think and feel about others, even our enemies. 
But you know, we think sometimes, well, in the Old Testament, things were harsh. New Testament, things are nice. But you know, this idea of the circumcised heart didn't begin with Paul. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law through Moses to the people. In chapter 30 and verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. You see, we tend to think about things while making it all about the outward appearance, the outward action, the way we act. But it's always been. Even when there were a lot of rituals, it's always been about the heart. It's always been about loving as God loved. Love him and loving others. And so we understand our struggle and we understand why these people here were struggling with well the outward action the ritual and it says right down there in the end the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary circumcision is necessary the Gentiles must follow the law we understand that well in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus talks about our righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the only way that that can happen is in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because it's a righteousness of the heart. It's a righteous attitude. It's a transformed and transforming attitude. It's not just about actions, about our activities. God wants a relationship and we're naturally drawn to rules aren't we we look at others we judge them according to what they do it's Satan's way of distracting us from the person of Jesus Christ from the salvation of Jesus Christ from the grace of Jesus Christ it may have been the Pharisees who began this movement. That may be that. It's certainly that Pharisaical attitude that began this movement. An attitude that we can all struggle with. But in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it tells us that Peter was involved. That's where we get this idea that Peter was among the group that came to Antioch. He was one of the guys that got swayed. I was going, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe the Gentiles should follow, follow our Jewish traditions. It also says in Galatians chapter 2 that Barnabas in the beginning was swayed in that direction. Paul was the only one to stand for Christ and Christ alone. And you think of it. You know, we can criticize as we stand outside of this story, as we look at these people, as we don't understand their time. But you think of the peer pressure, the political positioning that, that makes us want to dig in. And as I said, it, it seemed like a logical thing. 
I mean, if the Gentiles came to Christ through the keeping of the law, if that's what brought them to this culmination of the cross, makes sense, logical sense, that the Gentiles should follow that route as well. Seems to be the more conservative position. You know, we think of it. Well, if, if going to church every Sunday is important, and we could start demanding everybody go to church every Sunday. Wait a minute. Why not every day? Every day would be better. Doesn't that sound better? You're saying, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, we think tighten up the, ratchet up the knot, the, the knot a little bit tighter here. And that's what this seems to be. And, and well, let's see what happens next. In the following verses, verses 6 to 11, it says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They all went to Jerusalem, or a group of them went from Antioch to Jerusalem, and they were all there together. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples the Gentile disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. First of all, I think it's incredible that the leaders were willing to sit down and talk. They were willing to get together and talk about truth. A lot of humility there. A lot more humility there. Thinking of what Peter did. Peter, someone who was sort of moving toward these Judaizers, the guys, the Pharisaical guys who were saying, we need to keep the law. The Gentiles need to keep the law in order to come to Christ. He was going in that direction. For him to stand up and say, guess what? I was wrong. We remember what happened with Peter. We remember how he's hungry and he fell into a trance and he saw the vision, the, the blanket lowered from heaven. Rise, eat, Peter. All those unclean animals that Jews weren't allowed ritually to eat. And the Lord said to him, eat whatever. And he's wondering, what does that mean? And the Gentiles come to the door and they go, you know, could you tell us about Jesus? Could you tell us how to get saved? And he goes off and he teaches them. And they believe. They believe. And the Holy Spirit falls on them in the same way that the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples when the church was birthed in Jerusalem. And they had no choice but to go, God is at work. God works in the Gentiles in the same way that he works in the Jews. 
without the necessary religious traditional background. It's just Christ. And so Peter humbly stands up and he talks. He speaks out. You know, it's, you think of the arguments today. They have very little to do with seeking truth. The focus in most arguments today the tendency, our human fallen tendency, is to try and win the argument. It's not about trying to arrive at truth, is it? And so what people do is they stand up and they attack a person's character rather than speaking clearly about a position on truth. People attack others. People try and defeat the other person's arguments. And you know, people focus in that when they don't have a truthful position in the first place. It's easier to do that. Oh, he's not somebody you should listen to anyways. Well, that immediately defeats all his arguments, doesn't it? In the human mind. If we're not truly seeking truth. We need to talk more about truth together. We do as believers. If you have a little different opinion on truth, then bringing that up is not a problem because we talk about truth amongst each other and we go back and we go, okay, well, what is the truth? It's not a matter of someone being smarter than another person or better than another person. It's let's go back to the word. Let's find out what the word of God says. And this is what's supposed to be happening in the church. We're supposed to be willing to talk about truth with one another and even have disagreements where we, oh, I, I don't see things the way you see them. Well, what does God say? We need to be willing to talk with truth about the world out there. With our neighbors, conversation, they might bring something up. We need to know how to lovingly say, well, you know what? I believe the truth is. Or this is what the word of God says. If it's not something we can tie into the word of God, you know, maybe it's not something worth fighting about. If it's just opinions over this or that or the other thing, the things that we spend most of our time talking about. But can we bring people to truth, the truth of the word of God, when it's concerning those things that are most important? We need to be careful. We need to be careful about attacking people. We need to be careful about having a pharisaical attitude. Because this is the problem even today. Not that we have a group of people called the Pharisees, but we have pharisaical attitudes sometimes. And we need to make sure that when we are drawing the line in the sand, when we're standing up, for truth we won't back down not in an angry way but we will not move that has to do with the most important issues you see the apostle Paul gave up his pharisaism he said I'm a pharisee the pharisees he was walking the line better than anybody else 
But he also tells us in Philippians 3 that he gave that all up and counted it as garbage because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. See, Pharisaism uh, is not just something within Christianity. It's a problem that opposes Christianity. We need to count our attitudes and our desire to be right and be seen as right as garbage. We need to be more willing to be honest and say, hey, the reason, the only reason I can be counted righteous is because of Jesus Christ. You see, this isn't an issue of our eternal salvation. We can only be found in faith alone, in Christ alone. Do we believe that to be a Christian you just have to do a few outward things? We would all say no. That's not a part of the creed that we believe. But sometimes we act like that. Sometimes we talk like that to other people. We sort of talk like, hey, if if you just clean up your life a little bit and go to church, you'll be okay. Tell them, just stop sinning. Just stop sinning and you can go to heaven. That's what people are hearing. I wonder what would happen if they turned around and said, okay, I'll stop sinning when you stop sinning. Because we don't do, we continue, our salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Not to say we don't try and walk a righteous walk. But we need to keep coming back to this idea of grace. It's grace, it's grace. Peter says it so clearly, you know, we want to put a burden on these people that we weren't able to fulfill. We need to tell people our salvation is found in Christ. Your salvation will be only found in Jesus Christ in the cross and the fact that he paid for your sins. The part about what we do and that sort of thing, well, it's an ongoing process, an ongoing struggle. So we see these men sitting down. We see them fighting to get to truth. And this is a great advantage we have as Christian people. Truth is not found in the heart of everybody. We're not left to try and and consolidate differing opinions. We're not shooting at a moving target. God's truth, God's truth is right there, right here, clearly and unmoving. And Jesus Christ is our salvation. These men, it was one of these iron sharpening iron moments. They sat down, they talked about it, and they came to a conclusion. And here it is. James says in verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related uh, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, he replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, 
another name for Peter, Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and James went to the Old Testament, where God said, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. What would be the rebuilding of the tent of David? David's reign. Well, Jesus, who was of the seed of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remains of mankind, or sorry, the remnant of mankind, the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. All the Gentiles, the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James is saying there's nothing new here. This is something that that God spoke of in the Old Testament, that there would be a time where he brings back one of the seed of David, where salvation is opened up to the nations. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, from blood, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So James is standing up as the guy who's recognized as the leader of the Jerusalem church in Jerusalem, and he doesn't side with his people. He doesn't go, oh, well, these are my guys and they're the guys who went down to Antioch and that's, you know, we, we, we need to come out on top in this. Because what happens if people start looking at us as not the people who have the authority here? And so we see how apostolic authority, even it came under the authority of God. And his truth. That was more important. The testimony of that is seen here. He says, look at what happened with Peter. And he plunges into the word of God and he says, listen. This has always been true. God has always wanted to reach the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, we see it. That's been his plan from the beginning. So he's not left fighting over opinions. They're going, this is what God wants. And we know this to be true without fulfilling any of the ritual, um, traditional law of Moses. These Gentiles have come into the kingdom. They become one with Christ. They become saved. In Christ, God is presenting the Jews with their long-awaited Messiah. In Christ, God is opening a definitive door for the, for the Gentile people, the nations, the rest of the nations in Jesus Christ and the cross. It's about grace. Grace through Christ. 
It's not about the keeping of the law. And it's never really been just about, just about the keeping of the law. It's been about faith in the salvation that God is offering to us. I want to read one brief passage in Ephesians that helps bring this together for us. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. It says, the point, well in verse 11, of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, is to equip or to perfect, it says in some translations, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the manhood and of the knowledge, sorry, of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose that we connect with Christ, that we're saved by Christ, but that we are looking to him as the author, the finisher of our faith, that we are building each other up to be more like him because he's our salvation in the first place. But I think it's interesting. We see the process here. We see the process of the church as they talk about truth, as they lead, as we lead one another to truth, that we might be, all of us, mature in the stature and fullness of Christ. Father, help us. We understand that we have come to you by faith alone in what you have accomplished. It's your grace that has saved us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to continue in this process of becoming more like you. Never to feel like we've got a handle on everything, that we know it all, but to thank you for those things that are most important, that you've made so clear to us. Salvation by faith in Christ alone in the cross, the righteousness that he bought and paid for through his death and confirmed, Lord, through his resurrection. May we be people who continue to walk in your truth, who continue to um, point one another to truth, to this most important truth so that we can become more like you, Lord. By your spirit, by the fellowship we have with other believers in you, through the processes that you have designed in your church, Lord. May we walk in truth, may we become more like your son. May we glorify you in this world. Amen.